Hi folks, I'm Chris with a C. And I'm Chris with a K. We are the distinguished and handsome British gents who host the Champion Cinema Podcast. You know what they say about us Brits? Bad teeth, awful food, but a rich history of exceptional film criticism. Carrying on that tradition, you will find us on Champion Cinema discussing cinematic milestones such as The Long Good Friday, American Psycho, A Better Tomorrow, Death Wish 3, Halloween Resurrection, Exorcist 2, The Heretic, Turkish Superman, Star Wars, among many other things. Not only do we discuss and analyse films, we'll also tell you about the various pieces of tie-in merchandise you may not know about, such as newly commissioned artwork, action figures, video games, soundtrack releases, commemorative plates, scented candles, socks, and the most noteworthy physical media releases. Champion Cinema, with Chris with a C and Chris with a K. Find us on all reputable podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker. You can also find us on YouTube. Just search for Champion Cinema and we'll talk read at you soon until then I'll see you down the pit and I'll see you on the heap champion cinema that's why you always hit the record button as soon as we walk in nobody heard my alpha male voice dang which sounds even better right now because I almost sound like (laughs) (laughs) on account of the recovering on account of the recovery all right Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. Deep Cuts. Dune Edition. We did it! Theoretically, this is the second to last deep cut. Although Matt's been reading God Emperor of Dune. And he's like, "Mm, It's pretty darn good. I think you need to get on all this. So I think we might actually be moving on and doing the next three. So that's something to look forward to. But of course, as usual, we have no timeline. I was talking with somebody on threads because they were like, oh, you know, I just started my podcast in August and I'm working on it. And like, when did people start to feel like a success? So I was like, I'm going to go comment on this guy. <laughs> and I was like, OK, well, you know, you're in it for the long. I mean, this is the long game. So you settle in, you create, you create a version of this product, this create, we're creators. You, a brand. Uh, whatever that you feel like you could sustain indefinitely without feedback and then you just settle into a rhythm. And I feel like that's something we have done really well, which is I do not thrive well when I feel like there's external pressure. I can handle a near infinite amount of internal pressure, but as soon as I feel like somebody else is asking me to do something, it's like, no, (laughs) No, a thousand times no. But as soon as I feel like, oh, I'm free, I have no timeline, I'm going to get it done. And so that's why I always am like, you know, we'll do it whenever. And then we do it like next week. But (laughs) it's because 
I want to make sure. Under promise, over deliver. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the most important part is for people are here because of Rachel and Matt. And so the most important thing for us to be is authentically Rachel and Matt. And here we are all day, 24-7, Rachel and Matt. So you're welcome. I mean, It's, it's easy a, for us to sustain because it's not a character. Because it's not a character. This is If you thought we were different in real life, psych. We are not different in real life. Um, we maybe joke a little bit more. It takes a little longer to get us that. warmed up to this level of nerddom <laughs> in the public. We, we have to feel safe with you. <laughs> yes. And we feel safe in the podcast well we're just with each other the pod lab so we're gonna after that stellar you know what i see a lot of jokes about like the podcasting like podcasting is a bit of a joke right now because so many dudes are like i bought a mic and now i have a podcast and i'm gonna give life advice about how to pick up tricks and shit and so every time we go off on these like philosophical totally off topic random things i'm like oh my god are we those podcasters <laughs> And I'm like, oh, my God, are we those podcasters? Are we the ones that everyone jokes about? And then I go on Instagram, and there's a couple that I follow that put up videos of their podcasts. And I'm like, nope, they are those podcasters. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> you don't have to follow our advice. I don't know. It's just what works for us. Maybe it'll work for you. So I'll put it out there. I don't yeah. know anything. I don't have a degree. I don't, I'm not a psychologist. I'm just old, and I've lived a long time. You, you have a degree. You're just not a therapist. Yeah, I don't a have counselor. a degree in that. Yeah. I have a very useful college degree. Thank you for reminding me. You're welcome. In pottery. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget printmaking. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, that helps with my that... Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> also on that, that. That helped with your screen printing job. Also on that thing where I was giving that guy advice. It did, actually. Um, I said... I use Instagram like it's 2014. So if that's the thing you've been missing, like just pop on over to the Instagram. Witness me <laughs> not know how to do anything on Instagram, but have a great time doing whatever it is that I do do. I feel like I use Instagram like it's MySpace. And now I've started using threads like it's Twitter. So I just feel like I'm I'm keeping the spirit of social media alive. I'm keeping the original spirit it's of like Instagram alive. Being a ghost. Yeah. It's yeah. like being a ghost. I can't learn new things. It, it keeps the spirit of the thing around long after it has passed away from the mortal <laughs> realm. <laughs> I don't want to be a product. I don't want to look like a product. Although apparently MySpace is still a thing. I Not really. I looked it up. Uh, I heard Justin Timberlake bought it and he, he uses it for musicians. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> we're so it's not, to be it's not about, what MySpace was. Speaking about things that have been beaten into the ground like a dead horse, let's talk about Dude. <laughs> <laughs> We've been beating this dead horse for uh, 10 episodes but now. But you know, we're having a really good time doing it. So, oh, yeah. And yeah. nobody has showed up to stop us. So here we are talking about Dune again. Okay. So, so as I. As I said when this came on, I said, oh, Dennis is Dune. We know it's Denis. It's a joke. Listen to our past episodes. This is Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 1, which I watched once outside with a bunch of children. So this was kind of the first time I've seen it. 
I would like to say. Where you could really pay attention. Where I could really pay attention to it. And I think we could start off with the things that this version does well, which is... I'd say overall, I approve. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. And I think aesthetically, this is probably one of the most successful, just because... um, he had money. He had, he had a money, lot of money. And the s- CG has advanced so yeah. much. Oh, 20 years since the last oh, adaptation? Since Dune, the miniseries. Since say, children. 40 years since the David Lynch's Dune, which I've seen a lot of praise for David Lynch's Dune, which I always think is hysterical when a thing fails and has failed for like 30 three decades and then all of a sudden everyone's like well maybe it wasn't as bad as we all thought but like no it was bad it, it was it was bad it's just that we've spent a lot of time living with it and now it's kind of like that weird uncle that you used to think was gross but now you kind of think he's funny because you get a sense <laughs> of humor a little bit better and it's fine i mean we like it we listened to the episode on it we that was my formative dune and now i i have when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I walked like a child, and I put away childish things. And we're talking about Dennis's and we, when we put away David Lynch's Dune. Yeah, and I think that you can see in David Lynch's Dune that he was trying to achieve the scale that Denny achieves in this. Like you think about that scene where Paul is talking to all the naives, and it's that huge long chamber mm-hmm. that's really tall. And I think that he was trying to achieve the same sense of scale that Denny actually does achieve mm-hmm. in this movie. Because I think that's one of the things he's super successful at is the feeling of immensity. Nothing ever feels small. Everything feels immense and ancient and lived in. And like this is a society that has existed in the same way for so long that it is almost a relic of itself. Yeah. Like you think about the Highliner, the Guild Highliner. I mean, this is probably the most successful. Uh, this is probably what a, you know, what Frank Herbert imagined a Guild Highliner looked like was just immense, massive ship, and then you see just these tiny specks coming out. But then each of these specks is the size of a skyscraper. Yeah. 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 Um, bagpipes though. I don't know. Like, I think it was a Caladan thing. I mean, it's fine because apparently Caladan is Scotland and that's fine. <laughs> but it's the Highlands it's, by the ocean. It's, okay. I just think, you know, it's just the year 10,191. We have not, we don't have anything. Maybe they kept it around as like a, like the bullfighting. Like, why do we oh, still have yeah. bullfighting? Okay, well, I guess we also still have bagpipes. That's fine. Sure, whatever. And the moment when we reprise that music during the battle sequence, that's pretty fucking sweet. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a good moment. That's a good moment. Uh, This is probably the least boring battle sequence we've watched. The battle sequence of the... Yeah, the A Million Deaths is Not Enough for Yui battle sequence. Mm -hmm. the, The fall of the Atreides. Yeah. In the book, we don't even get it. It's just glossed over. And then every adaptation is like, this is our one opportunity to have a action moment in the first act. So Because Dune is just a series of rooms with conversations happening. Yeah. Or, or 
dunes with conversations <laughs> happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is like, okay, this is our one moment to get some pew, pew, boom, boom. So let's go ahead and put this in there. And they all lean into it. And it is my least favorite part of every adaptation is it's fine. They're fine. They're not like horrific, but it's just like yawn snooze. Let's get to the part where he joins the Fremen because that's when to me, everything starts. That's right. This is all just stride. world building and like character setup. Yeah. They're, we're setting the pieces out on the board. But it's a whole new world. And and when this was written. And so we have to go through some prep work. Yeah. So this is the prep part of the the story. This is the only adaptation that includes the time after they escape that Duncan finds them and takes them to Liette. Yes. And honestly, it makes the part where Liette gets killed. Well, in the book, Liette actually just gets abandoned in the desert. Right. Which is a really cool scene. Yeah. But the fact that they included that allows them to make more sense of Liette's death. Because otherwise it's like, oh, you were on the planet while the while the uh, Atreides were on the planet. So we gonna kill you. Instead of you were supposed to not help them and you helped them. And now we're going to go ahead and just... Let clean you go. Up. Yeah, clean up all the mess. I forgot how little happened in this one. He really, I mean, it's good. I'm not, I am all for pensive story making. Do not take me wrong. You can, you can make me languish in a beautiful scene for as long as you want. So this is not a complaint, but he does start spinning his wheels about midway through this movie. We get off Caladan pretty quick. And then once we get on Dune, it's like, well, we live here now, so there's no rush. Where, where are you going? It's fine. And I think maybe my favorite, favorite, favorite thing, besides how good Denis is at creating a sense of just hugeness, is the upgrade to the I was a friend of Jamis or Jamis. Jamis, like, this is enemy <laughs> mine. <laughs> um, that is my favorite upgrade because I know when we get that line in part two, it's going to hit. Instead of like, right, we're gonna... oh, I'm supposed to say something in the ceremony. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I was a friend of Jameis, I guess. Right. Because in the book and in the adaptations, when they've had this scene, this is like Paul's like bored. <laughs> he doesn't know what to do. And so it's. I think it's in the book, it's emotional for Jessica. There's tension there. She's anxious because she knows what role Paul needs to fulfill in this ritual ceremony. Yeah. But she doesn't know if Paul's going to figure it out. Yeah. And if Paul doesn't figure it out, this whole mythos that she's trying to build for him for them to survive and ultimately, like, regain some power and kill the Harkonnens, whatever. All, right now, the goal is just to survive. Paul needs to participate correctly in this ritual. And he just sits there like, her to her. <laughs> He's like, oh, that person was oh, a friend of Jameis. And then they well, all look nice. at him. Well, he had a lot of friends. That's really great. I'm really glad he had a good and life. And he's just sitting there in the back like, okay, yep. when does this ritual end? Yeah. I, I needed to go take a nap. 
I've been well, it's more like up. I'm completely out of my element here. Yeah. I'm checked out. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And yeah. then he finally figures it out. Right. Yeah. So this, I think, moves is going to move through that scene a lot more quickly and a lot more emotionally. I hope so. I hope we get that scene and I hope it hits the way I want it to hit because we the setup is great. I'm right. here for the setup. And if he if he follows all the way through, which I have every expectation that he will because I feel like he did such a good job with the first part, I have every faith he will treat the second part with the same amount of like gravitas. So I'm hoping we get that scene because the payoff will be worth it because look at how much world building we get with this one small change. One, we make Paul a lot less of a 15-year-old um, asshole. <laughs> right. We actually give him some useful information from his like prescient and future site. And it shows the viewer the implications of prescience. The fact yeah. that he can know a person before he meets them, but then one small change in the timeline and he's killing them instead of being their friend. Mm-hmm. And that will add so much to his relationship with Chani, which is he has loved Chani for literal lifetimes. In every possible variation, he has loved Chani. And he knows he will lose her. And I think that is probably my most favorite part of the Paul story arc in the Dune universe is he knows the moment he meets her, he will lose her. And I'm normally not a fan of tragic stories, but that's beautiful. I mean, I love mm-hmm. that. I love that. And I, I've followed a bunch of Dune accounts on my like Rachel sci-fi Instagram thing, and they share a lot of memes. And this is off topic, but I feel like it's important that we should, we chatted about it during the movie and I want to chat about it on the podcast too, which is they shared one that was like Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya and it was like Dune. And then it had... Zendaya and Hitler and it was like Dune Messiah oh yeah and I can see where you could yes that is a shallow interpretation of what happens to Paul between Dune and Dune Messiah if you are the type of person that felt betrayed by the loss of this white savior narrative right if you hung your hat on like oh I'm Paul I could save an entire world I'm a fucking superhero I'm fucking desert power hell yeah I could go and do that I could I could go and be the last samurai I could go to a desert planet and learn the ways these people have learned for thousands of years and somehow be the best at them hell yeah which is a narrative that we all grew up with if you lived in the in the 90s which is a white man can go to anywhere he wants to and he is plug and play and not only is he plug and play he's better at it than everybody else And so that, I think, resonates a lot still with a lot of people in our culture, which is, oh, Paul goes to the Fremen. Paul becomes Fremen. Paul becomes fucking king of the the Fremen. The Fremenist Fremen. He becomes the Fremenist Fremen ever. And then you get to Dune Messiah, and it's like, that was not a good thing. That was, no, no, that was bad. That was bad. Why why was this a bad thing? Right. Paul, what happened, Paul? So I can see where you're immediately like, oh, Paul fucked it up. He could have been ruler of the universe and he could have been really cool and I could have continued to want to be him, but now I don't want to be him anymore. But you got to realize, from my perspective at least, Paul is like a, a snowball that gets rolled downhill. He has absolutely no 
control over the fact that he's going to become this immense snowball. The only thing he can really affect is slightly affect his root. Right. So what triggered this in the movie, to bring it back to the movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're still talking about Dune, so. The the thing that triggered that conversation from the movie was the scene after after the whole attack and they're talking to Liet. Yeah. And like, this is what the Lonsrod, every single house in the Lonsrod fears is the Sardukar coming and picking them off one by one. Yeah. Because that will be the end of this loose. Feudal system. uh, Trust between the houses, the great houses of the Lonsrod and the Imperium. And it's only the only thing that can defend against the Imperial Sardaukar at full force is the combined strength of all of the great houses. So the only way the emperor could take down the great houses and completely solidify power is to have the Sardaukar pick off all the great houses one by one. Yeah. And if that happens, it will be galactic war. Right. It happened. It happened. The emperor did that. Right. He started a galactic war and the fall of House Atreides is the first domino in a galactic war that is now inevitable right. because it's going to get out that the Imperial Sardaukar assisted the Harkonnen. Well, even if it doesn't get Donald. out, think of how empowering it is if he gets away with it. Right. It's going he's to happen He's going to do again. it again. Yeah. And so Paul's perspective, all he's doing is shortcutting yeah. The this like short-term galactic war of the great houses against the emperor and repl- but then he has to he he's still assuming an empire. Yeah. He has to consolidate territory. That's something that's going to happen. There's a lot of discussion of this in God Emperor of Dune. Ah. And I don't want to I'll just say it comes down to human society. This is what do uh, Leto the Second, yeah, Emperor of the Universe. <laughs> We're uh, a member so, of the universe. <laughs> We're a member. Yes. In case you haven't heard of God, God Emperor Dune or seen any any memes been about it, to our podcast, Leto becomes a sandworm. Yeah. God Emperor of Dune is 3,500 years later. He's mostly sandworm. Yeah. He's the size of a small sandworm <laughs> with a little human head on the front. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he gets – there's there's a lot of character growth in Emperor – Worm Emperor Leto II yeah. in God Emperor of Dune, and I like it. So, if you have read up through Children of Dune, just go keep ahead. Going. Just keep going. Go for God Emperor of Dune. God Emperor of Dune was supposedly, the rumors say, Frank Herbert's wife's favorite Dune book. Brian said that. Brian said that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what I meant to just spit out before all that was. Worm Emperor Leto II explains that human society was contaminated by the pharaonic model of society. Mm. And 
So a lot of the like as side Pharaoh, effects, as in, as in Pharaoh, King. as in God King, as in God King, yeah, and and that has carried through human society since then, up to current, the year ten thousand one ninety one. Well, now it's the year thirteen thousand six well, ninety one. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's undoing it. Yes, yeah. That that's that's the golden path. Right. Is undoing this, removing this contamination from human society so that society can have, human society can have a future that can last a long time in terms of like hundreds of thousands of years. Right. Gotcha. So, bringing it back to Dune. Paul didn't start the fire. Paul... (laughs) Finished it. Since the world's been turning. (laughs) So, Paul, like, as soon as Paul, I I really like Paul's. I didn't put out. I really like this the way the spice is shown visually Mm, as just these orange gold sparkles in the air. Yeah, that it's literally everywhere. Yeah, it gives you the sense. I really like that pervasiveness of spice. And I like this portrayal of Paul. Like, as soon as he's exposed to spice, he, like, he goes and sits next to the sand crawler. The sleeper must awaken. <laughs> oh, we didn't get the line. No, I don't. Yeah. It would have been really cool. It's like awaken, please, that's hot. To include. Uh, include. It would have been really cool to include Jurgens. The sleeper must awaken. The sleeper must from awaken. From David. Yeah. Like, I really like that line from David Lynch's When dude. nothing changes, something sleeps inside us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a, it's catchy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, But I like this portrayal of Paul's prescience being awakened as this is the first time he's exposed to spi- like a large amount of spice. Mm-hmm. He basically like goes kind of catatonic. They take him back to Yui and Yui's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of spice around and you seem to be really – Really, really, really sensitive to spice, Paul. Wink, wink. Yeah. He's like, well, it wasn't an allergic reaction. I had a vision. <laughs> and, and Paul's reaction to spice yeah. is different than pretty much anybody else because he has the like one-two punch of all this Kwisatz Haderach breeding and the Bene Gesserit internal awareness training so that when he has that first shock of spice, it kind of like spirals and is like a positive feedback loop on his brain and internal awareness and everything. And now boom, he can see the future. Right. And I like that it doesn't all happen at once, but then we're in the there after they're escaping and they're in the tent and we get, he can see the future, but Every single future that he can see is galactic war in his name, in his father's name. Yeah. Worshipping at the shrine of his father's skull. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this is one of the more successful Tim scenes when he's like, oh, they're all going to be... Wait, wait. Let's see if I can do the Tim voice. <clears throat> Rachel was practicing last night. <laughs> Worshipping at my father's skull. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't hate Timothy Chalamet. He is a fine actor. He has a very, very Gen Z voice. He has a very voice. Gen Z voice. And I think I just get triggered because of my niece. 
<laughs> who is desperately obsessed with Timothy Chalamet, and well, I don't get she it. She was at one point. I think she still is, and but I don't get it because it. I it, I feel like I could break him. Like I could probably take him. Like the Family Guy skit. Yeah. Where. <laughs> I told you not to cast Timothy Chalamet in windy scenes. He blew away. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's, you know what? Not everybody gets to be a bear. Not everybody gets to be Jason Momoa. Even Jason Momoa doesn't get to be Jason Momoa for part of this movie. And it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But I, I just like a tiny little part of me wishes they had cast someone I didn't know. So I could really disappear into the fact that he's Paul instead of every time I'm like, oh, that's Timothy Chalamet. Either that or we could have given him a hairstyle that's not Timothy Chalamet's hairstyle. Right. Make he, him look a little different. He didn't even go to hair and makeup. He just showed up. <clears throat> he put on an outfit and they started filming because he does. his hair is the same hair he always has. Uh, it's fine. No, This is a minor quibble, like an extremely minor quibble. I don't have this problem with Zendaya. I love her desperately. I think she's great in everything that she's in. Um, I love that she is both the like beauty queen icon for Gen Z, but also the tomboy is not a word anymore, but the I get to do what I want. Like she wears basketball shorts under dresses and stuff. Mm -hmm. So like I, I, I like her. I like what she represents for Gen Z, but I, I, I really had, I just like, I kind of just wish we had not cast Timothy. That's all. I mean, he does a fine job. But he's Timothy Chalamet. And every time you see him, you're like, oh, that's Timothy Chalamet. Who is he again? Oh, Paul. Right. He's playing Paul. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the actor showing through the character too Yeah. Much. Because I really don't. I think it's just him. <laughs> and I think that's, I mean, he uses his voice and that he never, he doesn't move his lips at all. So every time he talks, it sounds like this. <laughs> it's just, you know me and lips. Like I have a thing with lips. I watch lips when people talk. And so when you don't move your lips a lot. To me, it looks like no expression. Right, because your sister is deaf. Right. Well, yeah. And I struggle to differentiate words. Like, especially, I think the first time we watched it, there was no subtitles. So that's probably why I didn't like it. My usual game of, did I actually not like this? Or did I try to watch it with no subtitles? And I just didn't know right. what was going on. So when no one, when lips don't move a lot, to me, it feels like there's no tone or there's mm -hmm. no expression. So... That's and part that's of my problem with personal. Him. That's a that's a personal personal thing. thing. To finish off, okay. What sorry. I was saying is, I did I interrupt you? Oh, who's tangenting now? Go ahead. <laughs> hey, <laughs> we have a flexible dynamic. We do, we do. Okay, we view structure with a very loose lens. <laughs> so we get, we get the emperor started the galactic war. Yes. Well, he, yes, he he triggered it. Yeah. Paul is just shortcutting the great houses against the emperor galactic war uh, after, I guess, at the end of Dune mm -hmm. and bef in between Dune and Dune Heretic. But when Paul's prescience awakens in the tent, he sees, he can see the landscape of the future possibilities and it's all galactic war yeah and, but there's like one point of minimal death as a result of the galactic war that's where he's got to go and that's where he's shooting for right he's like i'm stuck here if i just fuck off into the desert by myself this war is going to continue in my name and in my father's name right 
if I go along with it, this war is going to continue in my name and in my father's name. But I get to be here. But I'll have some influence. Right. I'll be able to steer things a little bit. Right. I'll be able to avoid the worst atrocities. And so that's that's what he shoots for. Apparently there was another path that he saw but did not choose because he could not choose it. Hiss. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but we don't we don't get that here. Uh so Paul shoots for the the future of minimal human suffering. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of Dune Heretic, he kind of feels like he's achieved that. You mean Dune Messiah? Dune Messiah. Uh, Dune Heretic. Jeez. I keep... <laughs> Dune Messiah. Dune Messiah. Not Dune Heretic. I think your religious Dune trauma is like Freudian slipping through. Maybe. <laughs> I hide it so well. Mm, we both do. Okay. So... Yeah, by the beginning of Dune Messiah, mm-hmm. he kind of feels like, okay, you know, this, this solidification of the entire galaxy under Paul Muad'Dib's empire is almost complete. And I feel like I did a decent job with just getting it over with quickly, minimizing collateral damage. Yeah. It's his turn to roll a ball down the hill, and he has to choose so, what ball it is. So at this point, against like compared against the other possible futures where the jihad had just exponentially more death and suffering in light of this context yeah. that I've been expounding in pieces. Yeah. Muad'Dib's not Hitler. No, no. That's what I'm saying. He's not Hitler in that he did not choose. He had very little agency in what happened to him. Right, and he sacrificed a lot to reduce the fallout of the emperor starting this galactic war. And I feel like seeding back into the narrative how overwhelming prescience is will get us to Paul is not I mean, Paul is the villain because Paul was made the villain and because Paul had to choose villainhood. And then when he did, when he finally had a moment where he could choose between being the Pharaoh or undoing his own legacy so that his son would be able to be a worm emperor and undo all of it, he chose the, I will kill myself and I will kill my legacy to prepare a way for my son. I'll be John the Baptist here. I won't continue to be Jesus. And I think that, you know, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, And I think a very shallow interpretation is like, oh, he was he was supposed to be the good guy and he didn't turn out to be the good guy. And like, I mean, okay. And you know what? If that's what you took away from it, fine. But like maybe revisit it and just wonder what choices Paul had at any given time in the book at all. My hope here is that we have planted enough seeds that may not be obvious. Yeah. Maybe to, to people who read books for 
Uh, more than just like breaking them down <laughs> and analyzing things. There's um, more than this. Is there a step beyond this? Holy shit! There's there's different kinds of enjoying media. Version. Oh yeah. Okay. We're a little more on the analytical yes. side. Yeah. So I think what we have to provide back to the community of people who enjoy films and books and whatever is. We can offer some little seeds of perspective and context so that if someone didn't get that from the book, they can go back and reread it or they can go back and watch it, the series or whatever. I definitely feel like. And get that. Yeah. I definitely feel like. Get a new angle on a piece of media that they enjoyed. Right. Dune is the kind of property where if you read the book, great. If you just watch all the adaptations, also great and like i almost feel like you should watch a really good adaptation like the miniseries and then go back and read the book right because the book is so dense and the miniseries highlights it gives you the shape of the narrative when you start so dune is wordy old ass sci-fi it is hard to get through if you are not the type of person that can read wordy old ass sci-fi and that's perfectly fine there is no shame in not having read dune the book just go back we've talked about it for like six hours and the audiobook's good too and the audiobook's fine and there's no it's it's fine i feel like we as a culture have explored dune so much that no matter how you choose to interact with it you're going to come away with the the basics yeah. And reading Dune the book is just the street cred. But to completely pivot from this entirely to get us off this really interesting, and I'm glad we had it tangent. Thank you, honey. You're welcome. Is um, I love it when space travel or technology, space age technology, sci-fi technology is portrayed as so ubiquitous. It's basically architecture. Right. And there's no chrome. There's no flashing lights. There's no beep boops. There's no laser pistols. There's no... It does not feel like, oh, this is space, you know, the space 1999, the like mm-hmm. spacey space space. And really, this is to me the way Denny structures this, like the aesthetic of this movie is almost retrofuturism, but not retrofuturism like the 1950s, retrofuturism like the Renaissance. Yes. Large ceremonial garb. Everything is like carved. Um it's kind of like ornamented. Yeah, it's like Star Wars if you took out all the blinking lights. Even Star Wars is very space. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. But even the ornithopters, we have like two handles and like a gauge and the gauge is not digital. It just There's spins. probably foot pedals too. Uh, and anyway, like yeah, helicopter controls. I'm not talking controls. specifically about how it how it actually functions. I'm like, oh, oh. there's no light, light up buttons. Oh yes, yeah. There's, that we all there's push. not a whole bunch. There's not like a holographic display. Yeah, a big heads up information blob. Yeah, probably the most technology thing that we have is when they wear the headsets with the mouthpiece, and that's it. Other than that, they have like the little button behind their ears to talk, and it just makes it feel. You get to have sci-fi without it feeling like contrived sci-fi. It feels like. Right. You don't have to contrive technological mechanisms. Right. And make up tech, tech, tech words. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Even though the the book is 
ripe with tech, tech, tech words. Um, the fact that we smooth that over and make it more like this is a, not a high fantasy epic, but this is like a hard sci-fi that feels like an entirely other world. It doesn't feel like the future of our world. Right. Because at this point, this is a 10,000 year old human civilization. Right. And we've had space travel for so long, we don't even think about, it's just space travel. And Earth is just, oh yeah, that old planet that we used to live on. Yeah. Nobody nobody goes there yeah, anymore. There's it's the, boring. <laughs> there's that moment where he's sitting there and he's reading a book and he's watching a projector video. Mm-hmm. And he's got the little box projector sitting beside him and he's just sitting on the floor reading this book. And... This is a really great moment because we could have had a screen. We could have had all kinds of high tech. What like think about the David Lynch version of this, where we had the the thing that came down from the ceiling and was like pew 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 pew. Oh yeah, the the fighting trainer yeah, thing. Yeah, we included the weirding mod because we needed to and make that's, it. That's that's really cool as like a steampunk. Yeah, that would have been a really cool steampunk technology. But this feels like renaissance projected into the year 10,191 like these are the wealthy elite everything they own is a work of art so much so that it becomes completely um taken for granted like his bedroom has that frieze behind his bed that carved thing of fish yes which is from the book yeah because (laughs) When the Harkonnens were leaving, they prepared a room that would be irresistible to Paul Atreides. They put a race car bed in it and everything. (laughs) And that way they know where to send the Hunter Seeker. And the Hunter Seeker's cool because it looks like an insect. And everything about that whole, like the aesthetic of that and the way it feels both ancient but futuristic is... Yeah, I would say the props and the set design. Perfect, yeah. In Dennis's Dune. Yeah. and Is amazing. And the simple power of not using the English alphabet. When he's reading that book, at a glance, it looks like it's just a regular book. But when they zoom in, those are not, that's not our alphabet. That's not what our alphabet looks like. And yet it's structured just like a book. And yet all of a sudden you're like, oh, this isn't our world. This isn't the future. Uh, Like this isn't the immediate future of our world. This is a completely alien place yeah. where we still have books because, I mean, how can you improve on a, a put together thing it's, of paper? There's a, there's a concept in like user interface. Yeah. It, it, user interface, Design. user experience, UI UX mm-hmm. for, for physical things. Yeah. There's, there's UI UX for technology, like, digital stuff. There's also UI UX for physical things, sometimes called ergonomics, whatever. I don't remember the name of this concept, but it's like the optimal size for like the human hand to interact with. A mass market paperback. (laughs) Uh, So a mass market paperback is like the optimized. It is the peak book Efficient. Yes affordable object like um form factor yeah of a book the pages the book is sized to fit into your hand yep the pages are sized so that you can 
turn them one at a time. And the words are sized on the page so that your human eyes can read them. From a comfortable hand resting distance. Yes. Yeah. And sure, you can just miniaturize, miniaturize, miniaturize. But from the like ergonomic perspective, you lose like effectiveness performance for humans using it. And so I think in the book somewhere, they actually mentioned something about miniaturization. Yeah, the Orange Catholic Bibles in miniature. Yeah. And, like, how, and how they, they don't miniaturize things like the pre-Larian Jihad mm -hmm. technology was because that's kind of over-optimizing. There's a an idea in computer science that um, premature optimization is the root of all evil. <laughs> so optimizing without considering the the effects, effects of that of optimization. optimization. Yeah. And so like our current technology, Earth 2024, it felt really weird to say 2024. <laughs> um, yeah, it's early days yet. <laughs> it's almost March. <laughs> so you got time. You got time. Um, we're in a race to miniaturize. Yeah. As miniaturized as we can miniaturize. And... And so cell phones did that for a while, but then when smartphones came around, it's like, oh, that tiny, tiny thing was okay because it was, it had physical buttons mm -hmm. and you could like push the number buttons with your fingernail. Right. And you could have this tiny, tiny phone that was an effective communication device that was optimized for the form factor and like usage that it had. Yeah. But then as soon as we were switching to touch screens, oh, now be the bigger, size yeah. of the interface has to match how you're using it, which is with the tip of your finger and you can't use a fingernail. Right. And you want to fit more information on the screen, whereas before you just had to have like the time and the phone number that you were calling. Yeah. And yeah, you know, text so then they message. Got bigger again. So they got bigger again because that was the optimal form factor for usage. And so in Dune, we have all of this technology that has been optimized over thousands of years for how people, like how humans, it's all human optimized technology, um, how humans actually use it. Yeah. Plus Frank Herbert's one great conceit that the future is free from computers. Yes. I don't think that gets enough credit. Right. The fact that he was like, okay, I see all this sci-fi where in the future we have these AIs, we interact with computers vocally like we do in Star Trek. We have all of this really advanced technology. What if, what if we didn't? What if the only advanced technology we could have was genetics and mental training? Well, so we have... We have some electronic things but no in Dune. Nothing that can mimic the work of a man's mind. Right. Human's mind. So that is honestly the single greatest conceit in Dune. It's like how since since the smartphone revolution. Yeah. 
a lot, like a lot of horror movies now take place in the 80s and early 90s. Right, because cell phones ruin it. Right, because cell phones shortcut the narrative. Yeah. The narrative device of being isolated. Right. And so, Frank, thank you. <laughs> you, you, uh, all the technology shortcuts a whole bunch of narrative devices that are effective. Yeah. But it makes it um, like the. It makes it timeless. It, yeah, it makes it Ultimately, timeless. Ultimately, it makes it timeless. You, the author, the writer, the creator of the story. The, okay, okay, let's let's generalize it. The storyteller yeah. doesn't need to do a whole bunch of extra cognitive work that's very like tech context specific in their world to work around all the technology that exists to make things happen in the story. Right. So Frank just shortcutted that by the equivalent of this horror movie is set in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no human level computers. Right. And the technology that does exist is just for enhancing human capability rather right. than replacing human capability. Yes. We're not automating things that humans can do, we're helping humans do those things. Right. We're not doing it for them. Right. So the human still has to understand the thing that they're doing. They just may have a piece of technology to help them do it. Like we have a miniaturized projector. Right. Maybe that projector, maybe the like the the thing that is getting projected, the data is stored in the book. And so like flipping through the book moves through the it's projection. About a different thing, but yeah. Well, I'm I'm just thinking of how how you can have like okay, there's a like a 3D hologram projector. Yeah. How do you pick what it's projecting? Well, they have like cartridges, like we have DVD discs. Right. Yeah. So, but then you could you could have like the book and the projector communicate, mm -hmm. and that's not that's not mimicking the work of a mind. That's not mimicking the right. work of a mind. It's yeah. just assisting humans in accessing knowledge. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. No, I I really think that the the universal and timeless appeal of Dune is really hinged around that one single concept. And I love every time a visual storyteller like Denis explores it and gives us this world that feels ancient. Because that visual style of storytelling fits really well in Dune. Right. You, you which feel... Which is very visual. You feel like this is an ancient space-faring society that does not have advanced computers. Yeah. And that's... Exactly what he should have been done. So, like, except for the Ixians. for you. Yeah, except, well, many machines on Ix. So, what <laughs> <laughs> the one of my favorite things about all these adaptations, and I think that Denis does it really well. And I know they've been teasing that Florence Pugh's Irulan is going to get the same treatment, and I am cautiously optimistic that she gets to be both powerful and also intellectual, and not like powerful because I can wield a sword just like the boys can. So I'm I'm really optimistic that they're going to give Irulan the same sort of treatment that we got in the 2000 miniseries, 
which is give her like a, a role upgrade without changing who she is. But I love the modern conceit and all of these of actually making these characters characters. Because <laughs> like Paul gets to be a character, Jessica gets to be a character, Stilgar gets to be a character, but like Leto is a MacGuffin. He's a means to an end. He gets right. us to the planet. And yet in this adaptation, Leto gets to be like a dad, a da- like a dad, like a good dad TM. Like he actually gets to be, like, if you don't want to rule the universe, son, you don't have to. I didn't want to. I wanted to be a pilot. Mm-hmm. You can be whatever you want. You're my only son and I will have no other heirs, but you get to be whatever you want. Okay. Yeah. I think there's other like cousins in House Atreides. I mean, not after the Harkening get done, but no. yeah. And so if Paul wasn't going to assume the title of Duke, yeah, there are others in line for but the they're title. Not dead. He and Jessica can still have kids, clearly, because they're getting ready to have Alia. Right. But I, I really did like that line of like, even if I love you, you choose you. not to do that, you'll still be the only thing I needed you to be. Be who you are, my and love son. What you love, Paul. It's fine. Yeah. And then. Oh my God, we haven't even covered the Harkonnens and how fucking fantastic aesthetically the Harkonnens are in this movie. Um, this is a straight lift from Jodorowsky's Dune, y'all. Like, go watch Jodorowsky's Dune. Jodorowsky envisioned H.R. Giger's aesthetic as the Harkonnen yeah, aesthetic. You can just Google Giger Dune concept art. Yeah. And some of those images will be of the Harkonnen. Like of Gaiety Prime I like and the Harkonnen like characters. This is an homage. Yes. Not a not plagiarism. Plagiarism. I think that this is a deliberate nod, and I'm choosing to believe this is a deliberate nod. Nobody disavow me of this information. So, first of all, Stellan Starsguard is pitch perfect as Baron Harkonnen. Yes. Creepy. I remember Gross. when the trailer first came out, <clears throat> we talked about it, and you were kind of like, uh, Stellan as Vladimir Harkonnen? Mm. I don't know. Okay. But then we saw like the trailer, uh, and yeah. you were like, okay. You know what I'm not sold on? Shaddam, Shaddam the fourth. We haven't seen him yet. I know. I'm... Mm. Uh, it is the position of this podcast that we remain optimistic about things that have not yet been released. Yes. So <laughs> I, lo- uh, I love that line. It is the have, position of this podcast. In a previous Dune podcast, we had a whole conversation about Christopher Walken. Yeah. Um, if you want to know our feelings <laughs> on <laughs> I, Christopher Walken. I trust Denis. I feel like yeah. Denis made a I feel like Denis makes the good, deliberate choices. So I'm going to believe that he chose him for a reason. And I'm just going to go with that. Um, What I do want Denis to do after he has finished the next two Dune movies, although he has said he's like walking back his I'm only going to do three. He's like, I said I was going to do three and then I was going to take a break. I didn't say I was only going to do three, which means it opens us up. For the 14-hour Michael Bay-esque movie that is from the point of view of Gurney Halleck. In the style of Ender's Shadow, where we get the entire narrative over again, but from Gurney's point of view. Because Gurney gets up to some shit. Gurney has the potential to Gurney's a badass. Yeah. 
rock star. He's like literally a fucking space pirate. Okay, he he's like, oh, the Atreides thing didn't work out. I'm gonna be a fucking space pirate. There's two years between the Harkonnen take like the fall of House Atreides and Gurney finding Paul again. Yeah, what was Gurney doing? Uh, he was um fucking shit up is what he was doing and, <laughs> and he then was there's doing another with style uh, and panache and i want to see it and then there's another 12 years between the end of dune and the beginning of dune messiah yeah where ostensibly they were on caladan, caladan. yeah he was gurney, pining after the lady gurney Jessica. didn't stay on fucking caladan no, I don't for 12 want years i don't want that for him there's a character in the a court of thorns and roses series who has held a torch for this other character for 500 years. And the only reason she has not acted on their, on his attraction, or the only reason they haven't explored this relationship for 500 years is she's actually a lesbian and she just has never told him. And it is honestly the worst story. Like it's just (laughs) what the 500 fucking years you couldn't go. I'm so sorry. I'm actually not into men. Look at that. I did that. What took what? Two, 10 seconds? Five seconds? Something like that? I don't want this. Wait, you, you mean honest, mm. open communication mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a Sarah J. Mass mm-hmm. novel mm-hmm. could have mm-hmm. resolved conflict? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so what I want for Gurney is that that was not his fate, that he didn't spend 12 years just pining, like holding a picture of Lady Jessica in his locket. Okay, here's headcanon. That was all in Jessica's head. Mm. She's an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. She wanted Gurney to hold a torch for her. She was projecting. Good. It's headcanon. It's our canon now. Because <laughs> that's that's not Gurney. Forget Duncan Idaho. I mean, I didn't forget Duncan Idaho. Duncan Idaho we'll, has we'll a get, special we'll get back place to in this Idaho. series. But what about Gurney, though? Yeah. Oh, uh, what about Gurney? Gurney man. What about Gurney man? Come on. And he's cool in this movie, and he's cool in every Adam. Well, maybe not the one where he actually has a Scottish accent. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, just get home more Gurney. Patrick Stewart's Gurney. I know. Well, we should have brought Patrick Stewart back for a cameo. That's the only thing Denny missed on. That's a swing and a miss. I'm sorry, man. You, I'm sure Patrick Ooh, would have done it. I'm. Ah, oh, it's it's already done. Mm. But what if Patrick Stewart was Esmar Tuick? Oh. Get him back as a cameo. Yeah. But also get him as the guy that Gurney goes to, like, becomes BFFs with. Yeah. All right. So, what is your hope for part two? But part two hasn't been released. We're recording this, it hasn't even come out yet. So, what is your hope for part two? Like, what is a. a a scene you think has to be included and you hope they don't cut it out. All the scenes that are coming to mind are scenes that were in the sci-fi miniseries. Yeah. But not in David Lynch's Dune. And that includes Chani and Paul having a son and that son dying Mm. as like a precursor to Paul just uh, taking over yeah, uh, at the very end. Going full badass at the end. Yeah, going full badass at the end. Yeah. Um, I've heard rumors 
that there's going to be a fight scene between Gurney and the Beast Raban. Mm. <laughs> 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 because Tell me more. Gurney, more than literally anyone else, hates the Harkonnens. Right, and he gets he wants he gets robbed. Gurney, yeah. Gurney wants like genocide against the Harkonnens. Yeah, if Gurney had his way, it would be full genocide. Wipe it them off the map. Yeah, destroy their entire planet. Wipe them from the history books. Level of hate. Yeah, and so supposedly, one of the reasons Dave Batista is playing the Beast Raban is because Raban has. A bigger role in okay. part two. Good. And rumoredly, uh, there's going to be a fight scene between um, Gurney and Raban where Gurney gets to kill Raban yes. and revel in the triumph of destroying a high level Harkonnen. Yeah. I mean, that would be good because in the book, Paul kills the Harkonnens and Gurney is like, well, I wanted to. And he's like, Gurney, they killed your sister. They killed my father. They killed everyone in my household. I have a far bigger claim on this revenge than you do. And Gurney's like, well, you are Atreides, so whatever you say. So getting to get Gurney into a position where he can actually do some Gurney shit, like I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, think look at look at Gurney as a I know we're fixating, but I'm I'm here for this. So look at Gurney as a character. Frank is pretty hit and miss in how well-rounded characters are. Sometimes they are simply there to provide a perspective or to advance the plot. And like Irulan, uh, she really gets short shrift in the books. And we've expanded her role in a lot of the later adaptations, and I'm here for it. But Gurney is this prepackaged. Not only is he a pirate lord, he is a poet and a musician. Like a famous like a poet. Like musician. his skill at the sword is only exceeded by his skill at the balisette. Like Gurney could kill you and then compose a ballad about it and it would be a banger. And why do we not have more Gurney? Maybe there is. Maybe there's this maybe Brian wrote one, although on the Discord we were discussing it and one of the people on the Discord has read a lot of the Dune books and they were saying that Brian is not the writer Frank was. And so maybe Brian is not as successful and that's why it's not as popular. But maybe Gurney does get it. But I want an Ender Shadow version of Dune that is all from Gurney's perspective. Because there is some that there he's my favorite character. I've always liked Gurney a lot. And He's this throwaway character. It's like Gurney. I mean, in the in the first book, he's not. He's the one who like he always has a quip. He always has a poet poetry quotation right. or like a composed on the fly poet poet poem, where it's like Gurney, give us give us the rhyme for what we're about to do. And he's like, cool, I got one for you. So he's so cool in Dune, but then by Dune Messiah, of course, he's gone. And then in Children of Dune, it's like, well, he's Jessica's puppet, and then he's Alia's puppet, and then he's gone. Yeah. Eh. And then by God Emperor of Dune, he's dead. Long dead. Long dead. Anyway, it is the position of this podcast that a sequel needs to be made from the point of view of Kearney Alec. 
<laughs> and I think this is a good, uh, you know what? I, I asked you the questions only fair. I answer it too. I want to know how they're going to treat the Paul takes the water of life scene. Mm. Because I feel like every single adaptation has had a different look at what that looks like. Everyone has made it this very like externally. Okay, so I, I want, thing. I want to add some context We're we keep using the phrase, all of the adaptations. <laughs> There's been the sci-fi miniseries yes. and David Lynch's Dune. Yeah, and both of those. And that, But then uh, what I want to include in that, so so that we're not using the word all, yeah. all of for two things. Okay. I want to include Jodorowsky's Dune in okay. there because he literally broke down every single shot and cut in every single scene. Yeah. And so in there is a a scene like storyboard for when Paul takes the water right. of life. It'd be really cool to get a copy. Right. Well, it's so in the two adaptations that we have, David Lynch is doing when he takes the water of life, it's outside. He gets like tied up. The worms show up and it's all very shy. Halud has blessed him. La, 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 la. You know, and then yeah. this, the sci-fi miniseries, he makes the water flow. Remember the yeah. joke about well, he had to pee really bad. So they're both very confirmation of divinity. And Whereas the book is... Not that not, at all. Not that at all. And what it does is make it hard to walk back in Dune Messiah. Oh, he's just a man who has this one unique quirk where he can see the future. Because uh, he summoned worms. That's pretty badass. Or he made water flow. Unless there were people behind him with a hose. I don't know. But um, he made water. like he literally, And then even in David Lynch's Dune, he makes it rain. So it's all very like, oh, he actually does have godlike powers. Right. And it makes it hard to walk it back in Dune Messiah. And I feel like if Dennis go Denis, if Denis goes for the full <laughs> the full this is confirmation of divinity, it complicates the walking back because it makes us see Paul as not just a man. And then it makes all of his actions between Dune and Dune Messiah feel deliberate. And I don't think we're supposed to interpret any of that right. as and the the interpretation of Paul Muad'Dib as like actually divine on Earth, yeah, or on Arrakis, is supposed to be like the shallow interpretation that falls away really easily because in Dune Messiah, when you point back at why did you think he was divine? Tell me the evidence. Yeah. That brought you to the conclusion that he's divine. And you go back and you see there is none. Yeah. Oh, it was all assumptions. It was all the legend. smoke and mirrors. The legend of Muad'Dib. Right. Yeah. And so it works really well. Right. But if you actually show... Paul Muad'Dib having like a physical effect on reality just from his mind or whatever. Yep. That undermines the, it undermines in Dune Messiah when you yank the carpet out. Right. Yeah. 
Exactly. That's why I'm anxious to see how he interprets it. Even Jodorowsky, at the end, he has Paul die. And Paul is so divine, his light invades the universe. Right, because and we that's all the, become Paul. That's the, the short-term interpretation of Dune as like the hero's journey yeah. as the savior narrative. Right. And apparently Jodorowsky was a big fan of that. Well, Jodorowsky right. didn't actually read the book. Right. He did not read the book, but he was also trying to make it more of an optimistic ending as in right. we all become a little bit divine. And then it doesn't, we don't have to have a divine ruler because we are all capable of ruling ourselves. Yeah. I guess that would, that would be a shortcut of 3,500 years <laughs> of worm emperor Leto II's attempt to, or I guess, continuous effort over millennia to remove the pharaonic contamination. Yeah. He uses the word pharaonic a lot. Yeah. Well, uh, he likes, he gets a good word and he's like, what's a good word? I'm going to use this word a lot. Yeah. So I think we'll just leave it there. Until we go and watch part two, which Matt was like, we're going to have to go see it at least three times to be able to talk about it. Well, we'll see. Uh, one, we have to be able to afford the tickets and the time. because Mostly uh, the time. It's not just the tickets. It's the child care. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we're hopeful. I'm optimistic. I had a really good time doing this deep dive with you. And I think I'm looking forward to doing the second movie and then maybe going on and doing the rest of the books. Not yeah. the rest of the books. Not the rest of the no, books. No, the rest no. of the six. The first six. Yes. Yeah. So I guess we'll just leave it there. That feels short. It was an hour and ten minutes long. Hold on. This isn't our pattern. Our pattern is for the podcast episode to be longer than the thing we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not making a three-hour episode. <laughs> well, see, the thing is, we have been having to give background. At this point, if you didn't know what we were talking about, go back and listen to the other, like, 13 episodes of the Dune Deep Dive that I have carefully crafted, plucked out of the stream, dropped into its own stream called the Dune Deep Cuts, So if you, you do listen if to. If you go to your podcast yeah. app, whatever... And search for Deep Cut Dune. Yeah. You'll get a separate podcast publication. I even labeled it as serial and not episodic. So it starts at episode one at the top and goes to the last episode at the bottom. Ah. You don't even have to scroll to the bottom and start at the bottom and work your way up. Nice. You're so welcome. Um, so that's that's there. Uh, it's also in a separate playlist on our YouTube channel. Yes. I've been putting all of the Dune episodes in there. And I kind of hate where this movie cuts off, though. I'm sorry. You you kept yeah. me around too long. <laughs> I have more to say. I kind of hate where this movie cuts off. I feel like the usual cut. I feel maybe the usual cut as in it's been done multiple times, but the miniseries cut like there's <laughs> certain places where there's a good gap. And I'm not sure that, oh, I've joined the Fremen and now we're going to go get on this worm. We're heading to Siege to Beer. Well, in the book, they don't ride a worm yet. They just walk. Yeah, because they're just like across the yeah, road. Yeah, because it's not. Yeah, it's not that far. Um, I don't know. I feel like they've pushed it. It this feels far. jarring. It feels explicitly so we could have Zendaya in the first part, right? And because she's in all the promotional materials for the first part, and she mm -hmm. kept every time people would be like, "Oh my god, I'm so excited! She's so great!" She'd be like, "Y'all, I'm barely in it." <laughs> 
there, there's some visions with me. Yeah. And then like I'm in the end. Like, don't go see this movie because you want to see me because I'm not even really in it. Of course, she'll be in it a lot in the second one. And I'm I'm hoping she really sticks to the landing. And I have every confidence she will. Okay. My, my take on why the why they cut the movie here yeah. is because they wanted some action to end the movie with. Yeah. They wanted some actual plot to end the movie with. And if you go any farther in the Paul in the joins the Fremen yeah. arc, uh, it would be a more disruptive narrative break yeah. to go in the middle of there rather than right here before we get to, before we start the journey to Siege Tabir. Right. So, yeah, I, I think it's because they wanted some actual plot at the end with like a f- kind of a cliffhanger. Right. Get Zendaya actually in the present scenes <laughs> yes and javier bardem and javier Ooh. Uh, i know like every time he speaks i'm like mm. do the fremen have a scott a spanish accent a spain spanish accent i don't give a shit i'm so here for this <laughs> i'm so here well, for you javier i did appreciate in the sci-fi miniseries that they all had an accent they all had that like Czech English as a second language accent. I also really like Javier Bardem's voice enunciation. Yeah, right. Um, periodically, I will I will rewatch that scene <laughs> from Skyfall where he's walking towards captive James Bond, telling the story about yeah. the island and the rat and the the rat king, rat killer. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Peak it's Javier and and periodically I will rewatch No Country for Old Men mm-hmm. and just fast forward <laughs> to all the Javier scenes because <laughs> he's so good. It is the position of this podcast that Javier Bardem needs to do more audiobooks. <laughs> I can just listen to his voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So we we get we get Javier. Uh huh. We get Zendaya. We get actual plot at the end of the movie. Yes. So I think that's why it ends here, because after this, it's. I mean, you get, he gets caught up. We we really like hit the throttle on the Mahdi, Lisan Al Gaib yeah. mythology, and that really needs to happen continuously to build momentum. Right. Up to the the end of the story. And like, I'm excited. I was fine. The only reason we find this jarring is because we have been so deeply embedded in the Dune mythology for so long at this point. If you were just watching this, that'd be like a, Oh, Oh man, I'm so excited to watch part two. I mean, that's a good spot. If you don't know what's coming. Um, I just don't understand why we know how to do this. The Lord of the Rings did this. You're going to make three movies. You film them all at once. Right. They, they, we know how to do that. Well, I could see. And so why is there a three year gap between part one and part well, two? I, didn't they film part one and part two all at once? I don't think so. Oh, I thought they did. No. Okay. They went back and started filming again. I could see why you would have a break between filming 
between Dune, I guess, part two and part three. Yeah. Um, for Dune Messiah. Because it's actually like a big jump, jump in time and it's a big jump in, it's a big shift. It's a, it's an inversion in the narrative. Yeah. And so you wouldn't want the characters to get like, or the actors to get caught up in the character because the way the characters are perceived does a 180. Yeah. And so they would. Meh. Anyway. It's fine. I'm not, it's, again, it's a really minor quibble. I just, we know how to do multi-part movies where they come out every year. But if it gets me a better movie because I waited three years. Okay. Fuck, fucking fine. Like fine. Right. Because in, in 15 years, if this is still like bingeable. Yeah. Then great. Yeah. Then like, we'll, we'll have all of them to watch and it'll be fine. Right. And they'll yeah. be good enough to rewatch. Yeah. So in the short term, I don't mind waiting for them to get made good enough. Right. So that they're re-enjoyable later. Right. Yeah. Now, I think we now, should wrap it up. Really? Yes. Um, Honey, we have to stop talking about Dune eventually. <laughs> Actually, we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't have to. We could keep going forever. <laughs> this could be our entire podcast, but it's not. I'm not. It's not. I'm not going to do that to you guys. Um, I was talking to somebody else on threads. I've been on threads. I don't know. Go on threads. I'm on threads. So I was chatting with somebody on threads and they were, they gave me a suggestion, which sounds pretty cool. It's like a horror comedy. And they were like, well, I know sometimes when you add in comedy, people don't consider it a genre film. And I was like, I mean, I get, okay, but also what about our past catalog would lead you to believe that we have any kind of focus when it comes to genre films? And then I was like, maybe, it got me thinking, maybe we'd be more successful. I mean, I'm as successful as I want to be, but maybe we would have a more meteoric rise, I suppose, if we could get ourselves to focus. And then I was like, no, I don't want that because i love our little our our little tangents like we, our beautiful little let's do this thing for a little while and then oh we right, got we, really we interested can, in this let's go do this chase our wins yeah we, this if we tried to make it too structured and like actually schedule things out yeah uh that that would make it feel like uh, another job i i really hope everybody is here because you love going on these little jaunts with us and I'm here to say we will continue doing that indefinitely because yeah. it's what we enjoy doing. If Sometimes, you enjoy listening to a conversation that you don't know where it's going to be going, great, because we enjoy having conversations <laughs> where we don't know where it's going to be going. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes Rachel has notes. I have notes. Of just like oh, yeah. beats to hit. There are things that I don't want to forget to write down. And they were Jodorowsky, anyone? I was a friend of Jami's, the aesthetics, uh, retrofuturism, the power of not using the English alphabet, Leto is a good dad, TM, and 14-hour Michael Bay movie from the point of view of Gurney Halleck. That yes. <laughs> and I think we hit all of those. So I'm trying to wrap this up, honey. Let it go. Well, I, maybe I should have made notes because I feel like there's other things <laughs> I wanted to mention. Spoiler alert. We're going to talk about Dune again. Okay. Let's, in a let's end it weeks. with this. I will maybe actually make a list <gasps> or 
maybe I'll just Are you gonna say, hey, hey, Rachel, can you jot this down as a thing I don't want to forget bringing up on the podcast? Okay, sounds good. Um, and we can discuss it after we watch Dune Part 2. I mean, there's a lot. There's more to talk about here. Liette was a girl. Yes. The coffee service yeah. where they all spit into the coffee service because the importance of the coffee service in Dune is both weird but also largely ignored in all the adaptations because right. and you and, inherit the and the whole service? like body water thing. Yeah. Like it's another person's spit isn't gross. Right. It's valuable moisture. Right. So and I guess we're going. Yes. Because <laughs> <Yes, laughs> you won't let okay. me wrap it up. So I haven't mentioned John Verveke in a while. So John Verveke, uh Let me pull him out of my head. <laughs> uh, he has a a cool, I don't know, spiel about ritual as enacted, uh, rit- ritual as serious play. Okay. Where you and I. Okay, I, th- I think this was the l- was the last thing that was nagging at me, um, which is a nice note to hit in the narrative at the beginning when they have the whole big visit from the like imperial guy with the scroll and the duke. Yeah, the judge uh, of the change. The um, the duke puts his ring in the wax. Yeah, and and Paul's like. Mom, why do I have to get dressed up? Uh, uh, just got up. Mom, I just got up. Mom, I really just got uh, give me the water. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Paul says to Jessica, why do we have to have all this big ceremony? And the reason is like ritual is valuable as part of like human like conscious development like personality development yeah societal development uh ritual is a like motion that you go through to explore like deep ideas yeah and you enact them so that because we live in bodies when we physically do something for the sake of doing it, it feels more significant to our brains. Yeah. Rather than just having a thought exercise about something, it's more impactful and more sustaining. Um, It's it's sticky mentally if you physically do a thing. Yeah. And and so that's why. And... Jessica should have been able to provide an explanation like that, like a more psychological explanation. Well, of, she's just whispering it. <laughs> it's not like the moment to pull out a John. I do like. Lecture. I do like that Jessica is portrayed as a lot more emotional. Yeah, she's always on the verge of tears. <laughs> okay, but maybe it'll make me because... like Jessica better. Oh. Okay, that's it. Ah, oh, the, good. The, the Jessica. We found the Jessica it. arc. Yes. Okay, so the ritual is serious play. You have to go through the motions of ceremony so that it's 
actually like mentally significant to you, psychologically significant. And that comes up again with the coffee service. Yeah. The coffee service is a ritual that you go through. It's not just, oh, get me a cup of coffee. Yeah. It's here's this interactive ritual that we're going to enact to like solidify our tribe, our relationship, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's that piece. Okay. The other one is what we've discussed about Jessica yes. and criticisms of Jessica. My growing amnity for Jessica's the, character. In Denny's adaptation of the Dune narrative, one thing that stuck out in this last, uh, when we rewatched Dune part one. Yeah. After, 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 he kills after Paul kills Jamis. 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 After too many sci-fi movies. Jamis. After Paul kills Jamis. Yeah. Stilgar is like, okay, let's get going. And like, you can, you can join the tribe. Yeah. All right. Fine. And Jessica's You're like, in. no, we need to get off planet. Like you have contacts. I need, I need to keep Paul safe. I bet you know some people, smugglers, whatever, that can get us off planet so that we can plan and like consolidate. We need to like let the other great houses know. Yeah. That the empire, whatever she she implies all this. We need. We just need to get off the planet. Right. So that we can. Like recover the dukedom, yeah, and and Paul stops her, and he's like, "No, my path is with the Fremen. Yeah, I need to stay here, and I need to fulfill this destiny that I'm perceiving." Yeah, which he's like, while he's in the prescient vision, he has a lot more appreciation of the depth and nuance. Of the future landscape. And when he's out of it, he doesn't, it's not until later that he can like maintain a lot of that in-depth knowledge. Yeah. So at this point, he's just, he has like this like, residual vision. He's like, I know I need to go through this to get to the, this like brightest point in the dark landscape of the future. Right. Where there's less suffering which if there is a generalized definition of what is good. Yeah, it's lower suffering. It's a reduction in suffering yeah. or a minimal suffering. And so Paul is the one who makes the decision to insinuate themselves with the Fremen. Yes. Which not Jessica. is a shift from the book and previous Adaptation. Adaptations where Jessica was like, oh, I'm in charge here. Yeah, you know, we, we're in danger. The, you know, Moheim reminded me that, like, we've prepared a way for you. Yeah, my son's the fucking Messiah. We, we've done what we can for you with the Missionaria Protectiva. Yeah. And so Jessica's like, all right, bitches, get in line. We're fulfilling the prophecy because in from her mind in the book, that that is the path to survival. Yeah. Is insinuate themselves with the Fremen and then they can use the Fremen to get, get back at the Harkonnen. Yeah. 
And it makes Jessica really kind of self-centered and manipulative. Yep. But I like this, this, is a very this good, little twist. Yeah, this is a is good an improvement. This is a good example of a single change that you can make that alters the way a character is perceived. So instead right. of feeling like Jessica is using her son as a tool for her own survival, which in her mind is his survival, but ultimately she offers him up as a sacrifice to the future for her own survival. Right. And yet in this, when she says, no, 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 we need to get off world. And he says, no, mom, I'm going to stay and play with my friends. It becomes his choice. Right. And that is a a single moment that really changes your perception of Jessica. And it works. And it makes it more... It changes Rachel's perception of Jessica. It does. Uh, although it, it, gives Paul it more probably... Agency. It probably... Um, other people probably felt the same way about Jessica yeah. than just you, which would have driven this this little twist. Uh, other I, people, I don't think her actions are as obviously selfish until you yeah. get to Children of Dune. Yeah. And they're like, oh, she comes back from Caladan. How long has she been there? Oh, since Alia was like two. Did she take Alia? <laughs> Fuck no. Left her behind. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you're like, oh, Jessica's not the hero in this story. No. And it's the same... Really, her character undergoes an inversion in the same way everybody else's does. The only person who doesn't is Gurney Halleck. And I think that's where we will leave it. <laughs> Can we leave it? Oh, you held up a finger. Okay. We can't leave it yet. Uh, I, I guess just the the last thought on on that is, even in this situation when Paul is saying, no, mom, I'm going to stay here. Yeah. He's... He's not necessarily responsible for the consequences. He and he's he's taking on the perceived responsibility for the outcome as like a sacrifice to reduce the suffering of the jihad. Yeah. But this isn't Paul having an ambition of becoming emperor because he wants to be emperor. This is Paul pursuing taking over the empire to reduce the the human suffering in the galaxy from the now inevitable galactic war because of what Shaddam did. So I guess that sets us up for, for Dune Part 2. Yeah. Okay. I'm done. Thank you. Do your thing. So remember... Sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful, too. So be who you are and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.